And where are we in the Gospel of Mark? The Gospel of Mark last week showed how, how Jesus is creating this new community, that he is, 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 there's a greater division, a greater break between the, the old ways, the, 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 the legalistic mindsets that were predominating in the first century, and the, the new wine, the new cloth that Jesus represents that he is bringing, and he is forming and gathering a people around himself. And so we focused on the importance of the gathering around Jesus as it witnesses to the fact that he is here, that he is Lord, and that we are his. And so we saw the, the great importance of being gathered around Jesus as this new community. Now, in, in today's passage, the, the, the division is getting even more pronounced because now we are dealing with people who are trying to figure out how to silence Jesus, how to put Jesus really away. And we have a surprising kind of conspiracy, conspiracy is the wrong word, a, a surprising uh, shared um, uh, objective between Jesus' family and these scribes from Jerusalem, who are both trying to do the same thing, but for slightly different reasons. They're trying to shut Jesus up. And so what we're dealing with today is an issue of trying to have Jesus, but not as Jesus truly is. Trying to reduce Jesus, trying to compartmentalize Jesus, trying to silo Jesus off from really influencing the world that we live in. All right? And so that's a, a major issue that, that uh, exists today. It's a major issue in, in the church. We are watching... Uh, the, uh, kind of a downward trend in surveys on the state of theology in America, a constant erosion of commitment to basic, essential biblical truth. Uh, the the, the uh, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research uh, publish a survey every two years called the State of Theology, where they survey evangelicals, people that, are, that, that check the box, they're one of us, on questions about the deity of Jesus, on questions about uh, the, the, the doctrines of judgment, the doctrines of the Trinity, and all these different things. And, and there is a progressive slippage in these surveys over two-year spans of commitment to these, to these beliefs. And so what we are seeing is, even inside of evangelicalism, a movement from a Jesus who is truly the Lord to a, a, a Jesus that is becoming more and more siloed off from lordship. There's other pieces of evidence that, that point to this happening. Um, a uh, sociologist named Christian Smith did a, an extensive survey of the youth that are now probably about 20 years old in our country, but the youth that grew up in the church, and he had them describe for themselves what, what the faith is. And he recognized that what the youth were being trained up and learning inside of a lot of evangelical churches was not actually Christianity. Or at least what they were receiving and how they were interpreting it was not Christianity. It was what he described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism was the, the, the uh, belief that many young people growing up in the church were thinking was what church was about. Moralistic therapeutic deism is that, we, that the church is all about teaching you what's good, what's right and what's wrong, that, that God is all about 
therapy, all about kind of telling you you're, you're good, you're okay, making you feel better, and that God really is not involved in your personal life. He's, he's God, but he's a, a deistic God, which is a God that is far transcendent and really not in touch with day-to-day events. He doesn't mess with your life in the here and now. He's, he's, he's way out there, <laughs> and, and your life is, is, is in the details. And so he's not really a personal relationship. So that, 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 there's a lot of things going on that are showing us that the commitment that, that is, is supposed to exist among this new community is, is eroding, is falling short. So as I was kind of thinking about this, I, there was a, a, a picture that came to my head uh, from NBA Finals basketball. Oh, I actually got my boy to lift his head. That's awesome. Back in 2019, the NBA Finals, Golden State Warriors against LeBron James and the Cavaliers. Game one, all right, Golden State Warriors were a juggernaut. They were supposed to win, but somehow in game one at Golden State, the Cavaliers had gotten to the end of the game 107-107 with three seconds left on the clock, and they have possession of the ball. There's a free throw. The free throw is missed, and this guy named J.R. Smith catches the rebound. He plays for the Cavaliers. He is right underneath the bucket. All he has to do is put the ball up, and they win game one of the uh, NBA Finals and maybe even change destiny. But the next thing happens is J.R. Smith takes the ball and dribbles to the half-court line. With three seconds left, he completely squanders the opportunity to win the game. Why did he do that? Because he thought they were winning. He thought that it wasn't tied. He thought that this was, I have to keep the ball away from Golden State. He did not recognize that the game still needed to be won. His mind was not there. So here's the question as we think about the church today. We are all on the court. Is our head in the game? Are we serious about winning? I really believe that's what this message wants us to, to grapple with today. Jesus is going to say some things in this passage that are direct and uncomfortable. But the reason is Jesus has called us to be serious people about the gospel. Jesus has called us to be serious people. The main point of this passage is that we need to be serious people regarding the truth of the gospel. And so what does that mean? Well, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that that means that we need to be boldly committed to three truths. First, the lordship of Jesus. Second, the seriousness of sin. And third, the family of God. If we don't want to be J.R. Smith Christians, if we really want to have our head in the game, we need to be boldly committed to these three truths. So we're going to go through our passage and look at these in turn. The first thing we need to be committed to is the lordship of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at these, the, the first seven verses that, that we, we read. So 
Mark is doing something in this passage that is a kind of unique literary device to, to his uh, writing style. He is uh, telling two stories at once, and he's mixing them together. So if you look at verse uh, 20, he talks about his family is coming to see Jesus, and they want to take over because he is clearly out of his mind. And then we have this next group of people, the the, uh, scribes from Jerusalem, who say he is possessed. But if you look at verse 20, which which is what tells us that his family came, and then you go down to verse 31, it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So what we really have here, if you, if you look at it, from verse 21 to verse 31, 21 goes straight to 31 in, 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 in the story. The, the characters in verse 21 is the families heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. You can go straight to verse 31 to continue the story about the family, which is, and his mother and his brothers came and sitting outside, they sent to him and called him. But Mark took that story and split it And in the middle, put another story about these scribes from Jerusalem and what they're trying to do. And so this is called, in uh, in literature, the Markin Sandwich. The Markin Sandwich. Uh, It is not a tasty sandwich. It is a a textual sandwich. Look at that. I did an alliteration. Uh, what, what, What is happening is Mark is taking stories and he is bringing two stories and combining them together so that the two stories interpret one another, so that we recognize similarities between the two stories and see a combined point by having the two stories brought together. So what do we have here? We have both Jesus' family and we have these scribes from Jerusalem. So what do they have in common? Both of these groups have what we would call insider knowledge or expert knowledge, right? The, the, the family of Jesus, I mean, who, who should know Jesus better than Jesus' mom and brothers, right? That, that those people should know Jesus. And then who should know whether Jesus is the Messiah better than the people who have memorized all of the scriptures to know who the Messiah is supposed to be? Those would be your scribes from Jerusalem. So we have people who have expert knowledge, and they should be the most equipped to see Jesus and recognize who he is, right? But instead, neither of these groups, as we meet them in this passage, are confessing the truth that they should know, right? The scribes who should know that anyone who can raise a paralytic, who can exercise demons, who can uh, uh, authoritatively interpret Scripture, this person is, is, is making a strong claim to be Messiah, right? And if, if the family uh, who has seen Jesus grow up and, and, you know, from Matthew and Luke, know Jesus came from uh, uh, miraculous birth and, and all of these, these things... They should know as well that, that Jesus is, has a special mission. He, is, he should be doing what he is doing. So these two stories brought together is Mark's way of raising this question. Who is Jesus and how are we to respond to him? Who is Jesus and how are we to respond to him? 
the, the, the family of Jesus, their, their response is Jesus has gone off the reservation. Jesus has gone crazy. Jesus is bonkers. We need to take control of Jesus and, and kind of take him out to the country where he doesn't bother anybody anymore and he doesn't embarrass us anymore. Now, the, the, the scribes of the law, their uh, accusation is a little bit more uh, nuanced. They instead come and they say, this person who is exercising demons, he is exercising demons because he's actually filled with demons. He is actually demon-possessed. He is actually an agent of, of Satan. So we have the family saying Jesus is a lunatic, and we have the experts saying that Jesus is basically a liar. And so Jesus is answering this most important question. He's bringing the, his answer to us starting in verse 23 by talking to the scribes. What does he say to the scribes? The first thing he says to the scribes is, uh, that's the stupidest thing anyone could ever say. <laughs> that's basically the first thing he says about their explanation. He, he says, how could Satan cast out Satan? If Satan is casting out Satan, then he is at war with himself, and he has no power, and he is coming to an end. And clearly, that's not, that's not true. That is, that is a, a, a bald-faced uh, lie. It is absurd. And instead, he says, what the truth is, is not that I am an agent of Satan, but that I am the great adversary of Satan. The reason that, that, that Satan's kingdom is falling before me is because I am more powerful than the armies of Satan. So he uses this parable where he says, how uh, can the strong man's house be plundered until the strong man is bound? So he's using a parable speaking of, of, of Satan as basically the, the owner of a house. And he is a strong man. Satan is a strong, powerful uh, man. And there is no way that you could uh, go and uh, burglarize someone's house if they had this massive security system, you know, major strength, bodyguards, and all that sort of stuff. You couldn't, you couldn't go in and just take what you wanted. Satan's house is well defended. He's a strong man. The only way that you would be able to get all of the stuff out of the house, Jesus says, is if you first bind the strong man, right? You take the strong man and you defeat him, and then you're able to take all of the stuff out of his house. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm not an agent of Satan. I'm the one who has the power to bind Satan. What you are seeing with your eyes is my supremacy in binding Satan and plundering his house. The reason that, that demons are being exercised and people who were possessed by demons are now in their right mind is because my lordship is over Satan. And I am commanding his demons to leave because I have a higher authority than Satan. All right? He is the binder of the strong, strong man. So who has the power to bind Satan? I mean, our, our uh, ability to postulate answers to that question is pretty limited. Satan is, is understood as uh, one of the most powerful beings. And yet Jesus is saying he is the binder of Satan. The, the, the clear implication is the one who can bind Satan is, is God. 
And so what, what Jesus is, is, is clearly implying is that he is the power of God. He is God in the flesh. And so he is here declaring to the, the, the scribes from Jerusalem that, no, I am not an agent of Satan. I am the Lord. I am the Lord who is above all. And so he comes to present in a very dramatic way that he is the Lord. Jesus' lordship is on display in the fact that he is uh, casting out demons. He is overcoming Satan's kingdom. And so the question for us is, are we committed to the lordship of Jesus today? Are we committed to the lordship of Jesus today? Do we recognize and live under the same powerful Lord that is presented to us in the Gospel of Mark? So as I, as I said, the, the, this uh, survey, the state of theology that, that has been uh, conducted several times over the last several uh, years, this last year um, surveyed evangelicals, and on the question of who is Jesus, 53% of evangelicals agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So in the, in the survey of, of evangelicals, the question, was Jesus just a great teacher and not God? More than 50%, a majority of modern evangelicals in the United States said that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. So we, we see here that in our country, there is an erosion of of confessing the lordship of Jesus. And that erosion of confessing the lordship of Jesus has only one reason for it. Familiarity with who Jesus revealed himself to be. The, the, the source of where modern evangelicalism is coming to, to learn about Jesus is not his own gospel. Because if you look at our text here, Jesus is saying, I am not a lunatic. I am not a liar. The only thing that I can be is the Lord. Because if, if I'm not out of my mind and I'm not lying, then what I am saying must be the truth. And what I am saying is I am the one who binds Satan. I am the one who forgives sins. I am the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. There is only one person that can be. It cannot be a great moral teacher. That would be a blasphemer. The only person that can be is the Lord. And so C.S. Lewis has a, a, a wonderful response to this. He's just a great teacher. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So are we committed to the lordship of Jesus? We need to be, for the sake of our own evangelical brethren, but even more so for the world around us. But when we think about being committed to the lordship of Jesus today, I, I, I want us to, to delve a little bit deeper and, and, and get past just what our, our heads do with this knowledge and start also asking, are our hearts and our behaviors also confessing and boldly committed to the lordship of Jesus? So I want us to consider the family for a second. The family comes to Jesus and you can tell that they, by calling him out of his mind, you can tell that what they're really processing is they're starting to feel ashamed of Jesus. Jesus' words, Jesus' actions are bringing attention that is starting to embarrass them. It's bringing unwanted attention upon Jesus' family and Jesus' family name. And so they, they out of shame, want to take charge of Jesus to, to protect their honor. And so that is the way that they got to this question. Now, I think that is worth asking ourselves an examination question. Are we avoiding a faith in Jesus that might embarrass our family or our friends? A lot of people say, you can have Jesus, just don't get crazy with it. You know, just don't go too far with that. It can really, really make you weird. You know, we're okay that you're a Christian, but just keep it to yourself. Do we accept those sorts of terms? Are we avoiding a Christ that might be mocked by today's authorities and elites? I mean, there are certain things that come with Jesus that the authorities and the elites of our, of our day, the, 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 the conveyors of the modern wisdom, would say, you can't honestly believe that. Do we avoid a Christ that might be mocked by today's authorities and elites? Now, what about the scribes? I think if we really get to the baseline of what's going on with the scribes, they see Jesus as a threat. Again and again, Jesus is, is taking away something that they had taken charge of, something that they had gotten uh, authority and power and honor from, and Jesus' is coming is starting to kind of pull down their, their prestige. It's starting to be a threat to their position in society. They had been committed to the old way. They had climbed the ladder of the old way, and now Jesus bringing the new way is, 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 is disrupting everything. And so there is a, a threat, and the scribes are trying to, to uh, neutralize the threat of Jesus by this assinuation that he is not a great teacher. He is actually an agent of Satan. So has the, the, the threat of Jesus affected our commitment to his lordship? Let me ask you this. Do we believe in a Jesus that this world would kill? Do we believe in a Jesus that this world would kill? I, I assure you, the true Jesus 
would be killed by every generation. Because the true Jesus is a threat to every person committed to the world. And so if we believe in a Jesus that would not be killed by this world, then perhaps we have accepted a Jesus whose lordship is not the, Jesus, the lordship that is given to us in the scriptures. Have we made Jesus one who fits perfectly with our preferences, our social groups, or the people that we want to be like? This is a, a, another way of dealing with the threat of Jesus' lordship and recasting him in, in, a, in a way that is suitable to us. So here's what I want you to think about. If we are neutralizing Jesus because of his threat to the life we want to have, or if we are acting uh, towards Jesus out of a, an underlying shame that we do not want uh, him to get in the way of the family and the friends and our reputation, then we need to really ask the question, are we committed to the lordship of Jesus? And we need to dwell upon the words given to us by Jesus in Mark 8.38, which says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's a tough verse. Are we pursuing honor now that may incur shame before Jesus later? Are we committed to his lordship now so much that we will deal with shame today so that we receive his honor on the last day? The lordship of Jesus, are we boldly committed to it? We are witnesses, friends. We are witnesses. If we do not witness to the, to the lordship of Jesus, to the Jesus that is presented to us in the scriptures, then nobody is going to find him through us. That is why it is so important, as we are committed to being disciple makers, that we are committed to the truth of who Jesus is. Now the second uh, truth that we have to look at is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. So Jesus now turns to a deeper concern. He turns to their rejection. The scribes were committing to unbelief. The scribes were committing to unbelief. And, and what they were doing is they should have been able to see Jesus and to see what Jesus was doing and recognize it as the power of God. In fact, they clearly uh, have all the knowledge that they need to know what a work of the Holy Spirit is what, what, what the power of God is, and instead of taking the revelation that is in front of them and believing it, they are instead hardening themselves to not believe it. They're instead looking at, they're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit, and instead of, of accepting that work as the work of the Holy Spirit, which their eyes clearly see, they are saying, no, that is the work of Satan. They have twisted a lie over the clear truth that is so twisted that there is no way to get to the truth anymore, right? Um, 
They're like your, 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 your modern-day conspiracy theorists, where they take all of the facts and then they, 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 they corrupt them and twist them so that uh, they now see them as almost the exact opposite of what they are. But once they're there, they, they, they can't be disentangled. They can't be brought back out of a conspiracy. Once they're in that conspiracy mindset, it's like that's their reality. And, and whatever real reality is, is, is you, just, you can't even explain it to them because they have given up on real reality, right? So this prompts Jesus' most serious warning. We need to hear it again. In verse 29 and 30, Jesus says, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So here Jesus says words that, if you're like me, have bothered you a great deal. Because we are being told here that there is some sin that Jesus says cannot be forgiven. There is an unforgivable sin. And so what is the unforgivable sin? I remember early on in my Christian life, I mean, that was the most important piece of information. What is the unforgivable sin? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? And there were times of great worry. Maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin, and and I want to be saved, but I can't because I've committed the unforgivable sin. Or maybe I will commit the unforgivable sin and lose everything. And so there is this fear in these words about the unforgivable sin that, that pricks and tortures many of our consciences. So what is the unforgivable sin? Well, actually, it's given to us right here. Let us read carefully Verse 30, the unforgivable sin is explained to us. They were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. Jesus has an unclean spirit. So what they were doing is they were looking at Jesus who had the Holy Spirit and say, no, he has an unclean spirit. So they were calling what is maximally holy, good, and righteous, and beautiful. What is most abominable, terrifying, evil, and wicked. That is the unforgivable sin, looking at what is truly holy and calling it the pit of hell. So the unforgivable sin is this. It is to knowingly and willfully attribute the saving power and work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Okay? And what makes it unforgivable is because that person, because of their commitment to that belief, will never seek forgiveness. You see what's happening here. If you say that the one who brings forgiveness is actually the devil, then you will never come to that person for forgiveness. So what makes the unforgivable sin unforgivable is that the person who commits it will not seek forgiveness. The sin itself is forgivable. It's the sinner who never seeks forgiveness for it. Does this make sense? It's, it's, it's the idea that, uh, I, if it, let's look at it this way. If, there was a, if you were dying of thirst, and there was a, a, a jug of water, 
And that jug of water would, would save you from dying. But you believed in your heart that that water was actually poison. You would never drink it. You would just keep going and going and going until you died, right? The unforgivable sin is basically saying the Holy Spirit, the gift of salvation, the, the wonderful uh, gospel is actually uh, a, a dangerous poison. And if I touch it, I, I, I would be destroyed. And so it is because of that position that they never come to it, that they are never forgiven. Does that make sense? So what makes a sin unforgivable is that the person never seeks forgiveness for it. And this is a sin that is, that is only committed by those who, have, uh, who know it so well and yet willfully harden themselves. So what are some examples of, of maybe those who have committed the unforgivable sin? Well, the demons would be an example. I mean, the demons saw all of the goodness of God, all of the goodness of heaven, and yet they rejected it. They know Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't want anything to do with Jesus, right? And then maybe another example would be Judas. Judas spent three years seeing the power of God, seeing the grace of God, seeing the presence of God in Jesus, and yet still betrayed him. And he was so hardened in his sin, even though he was remorseful for it, he did not seek forgiveness from Jesus for it. That's what made it unforgivable. So, are you worried about committing the unforgivable sin? Well, that's the best evidence that you don't need to worry about it. Because nobody who is worried about the unforgivable sin has committed it. Because the people who commit the unforgivable sin don't want forgiveness. They're done with the idea of forgiveness. And so, to be worried with it is, is strong evidence that you are still uh, close to the Lord. However, though, uh, there is an important teaching here that we cannot sidestep, and that is the seriousness of sin. So the state of theology, again, uh, was polled about the seriousness of sin, and it said that it found that 25% of evangelicals agree that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Now, nobody likes that sentence. <laughs> the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation, and it's understandable why uh, only 25% would, would want to agree with it. But what we have here is that 75% of evangelicals do not believe that all sins are damnable. And as much as my flesh would like that not to be true, we have to look at this text and come to the opposite conclusion. It is not popular. Talking about sin, you know, it's not fun, but if we are committed to Jesus' lordship, we must be committed to his word. And verse 29 describes the person who commits the unforgivable sin as guilty of an eternal sin. Guilty of an eternal sin. Note that it is an, not the. Jesus does not say that there is, a, that there, that there is one eternal sin. He is saying that the one who does not seek forgiveness is guilty of eternal sin. Which means that it isn't teaching, that Jesus isn't teaching about the guilt of a particular sin, but the guilt of all unforgiven sins. All unforgiven sins have eternal guilt. I, I, that's a hard truth. That's a hard truth. 
But it does, this is not the only place where we find it. Look, look again at Romans chapter 6, verses 23, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is an example of, of parallelism. For the wages of sin is death is parallel to, but the free gift of God is eternal life, right? So you have wages and you have gift. You have uh, death and you have eternal life. The death that is being spoken of in Romans 6.23 is not the, the death of just your heart stop beating. It is the death of eternal separation from God. The parallelism between death and eternal life is telling us that sin, the wages of any sin, is death, which is a complete and forever separation from the life of God. A very hard truth. A not a popular truth. But at the same time, a truth we cannot deny. This is the seriousness of sin. Sin has an eternal price tag. Why do we say, why could it be eternal? I mean, I understand all of the arguments of eternal punishment is, 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 too, is too big. Uh, who can possibly be guilty of eternal sin being a finite person? I mean, how big could our sin possibly be? And that's why the Bible has to be our guide about sin. Because we would never recognize the seriousness of our sin by human reason alone. But there are at least two, reasons, two, two things that we can point to for why sin has such a serious consequence. The first is that sin is against God. All sin is against God. And God being an infinite holy being means that all sin has an infinite cost. Right? So what, what determines the cost of your car wreck? If you... If you uh, run into a car, and it's a 1968 um, Pinto, right? You may be owe 500 bucks. If instead you, you wreck your car into a brand new, right-off-the-lot Maserati, you owe $300,000, right? So the debt has everything to do with who, who the uh, damage is done against, Right? So when we're dealing with an infinite God, our sin against him has an infinite cost to it. And so that is one reason why we see an eternal punishment for sin. There are no small sins. If there were, Jesus would not have died on the cross. Do you recognize that Jesus' cross is the measuring stick for sin? And the cross says that all sins are major sins. Otherwise, Jesus would not have died for them. He died because all sins carry an eternal price tag. But then the third, the, I guess the third thing I would say about the, the, the reason sin has a, 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 an eternal punishment to it is that humans were created because to have eternal fellowship with God. That's how we were created. In the Garden of Eden, God wanted us to have an eternal relationship with him, a, a life always with him. That is why we were created. When we sinned, we corrupted that, and we were forced to separate from God. But that doesn't change the way and the purpose of, of, of our creation. Sin has only taken what was to be a blessing 
and twisted it into a curse. You see, our, our unending fellowship with God, sin causes separation with God, but it doesn't take away the unending part of our existence. And so there is still an eternal consequence when we are separated from God. Why do we, why do we belabor this point? Because as evangelicals, we must know that sin is the greatest danger. Sin is the greatest danger that faces anyone. And forgiveness is the greatest need. If we fall short of recognizing the seriousness of sin, then we will easily migrate our mission to something the world is more interested in us being about. We can take up any number of causes in this world But none of those causes in this world have as great of a consequence as sin. And we're the only ones who have been committed with the message of forgiveness for sin. And only if we recognize how great and how great is the gravity of sin and the need for forgiveness will we stay committed to it when the world says, we'd like you a lot more if you focused on this social cause, or if you focused on uh, this felt need, or if you made yourself more uh, about just good things that the world loves, why don't you fix, fix one of those things? The reason is not that those things don't need to be done, but that they're not as serious or as urgent as sin. The good news that we have and the good news that only we have is that all sins are forgivable, including blasphemy. Look again at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Do you hear that? All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is the good news. Murder is not unforgivable. Moses committed murder. Adultery is not unforgivable. David committed adultery. Denying Christ is not unforgivable. Peter denied Christ three times. There is no unforgivable sin if we come to Jesus with our sin. All sins are forgiven because Jesus' cross forgives all sins. That is the good news. That is the message. He alone removes the curse and restores the blessing of life with God. So the real question is, are we committed to being people that acknowledge the seriousness of sin, that do not flinch from the seriousness of sin, but offer with all the joy and urgency the good news that all sins and all blasphemies can be forgiven in Christ? That is who we are called to be. Now briefly we'll deal with the the third commitment, which is the family of God. The Mark and Sandwich comes to a close. The family comes back. They're trying to take Jesus away. He's inside this house, and he's teaching again. And the question that the Mark and Sandwich wants us to close with is, how do we respond to this message? Jesus' family is outside calling him to go with him, and Jesus' answer is in verse 33 and 34. Who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is shockingly countercultural. Jesus puts himself and fellowship with him at a higher priority than even family, which was number one. Actually, it was number 1B. 1A was always God. And so Jesus saying that that being around me is a higher priority than being with family or following your, your family's wishes is a way of putting himself once again in that unique position of divinity. And so Jesus is telling us, are you committed to me above even your family? Above even your family. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus isn't against our family, but he will not be made second to our family. All right. So as, as, we, as we kind of round this all up, <laughs> What does it mean to be serious? It means that we are boldly committed to the lordship of Jesus, to the seriousness of sin, and to the family of God. And as we look at this message, we think, man, this is hard. This is heavy. This is unpleasant. But let us remind ourselves actually what we receive. Let us dwell finally upon what is ours by our commitment to the lordship of Jesus, the seriousness of sin, and the family of God. And I believe it is right there in the very last verse. Jesus looks around and says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, if you are committed to Jesus, you are part of his family, and he looks at you and says, brother and sister, You are part of Jesus' family. You may lose all sorts of honor, all sorts of privilege, all sorts of access in this world, but what you gain in your confession of Jesus is Lord is you gain eternal life with the one who loves you to the death and has made you at no cost his brother and his sister. He bore the eternal guilt of our sin so that we could be blessed with the eternal life of God. When we shrink from the seriousness of the Christian life, we shrink the beauty of Jesus. We shrink the magnificence of his sacrifice. And we shrink the immeasurableness of his life and love to us. Beloved, let us not be ashamed of Christ. Let us honor Christ that we might always be honored by him. Amen? And now we come to the Lord's table, which is a place where we come to confess Jesus is Lord, to recognize the seriousness of our sins, which apart from the 
love of Christ, we could never come to this table. And we sit at this table to see the family of God. Everybody who takes these elements is brother and sister of Jesus. That is what we receive at this meal. And I hope that as you come to this meal, that these elements and what they communicate to you become more precious than whatever the world's mocking or your family's embarrassment might make you want to shrink from this. Let yourself taste and see that the Lord is so good that I would commit all of my life to him. Come to this table, receive his elements in grace, and leave this table walking in the newness of life that says, Jesus is Lord. He is the forgiver of my sins. And he 